Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Let's talk about discomfort. Is it necessary for us to grow? We're going to discuss discomfort as well as raising indistractable teenagers in a culture that is overwhelmed with distraction. I'm distracted as an adult. Just imagine what it's like for young and developing brains who are still learning the thick of the ways of the world and are entrenched in rigorous education programs. We'll talk about how to come alongside your teenager and helping them to be distraction-proof. My guest today is Nir Isle. He wrote an excellent book titled Indistractable. It's helped me as an adult. It will help your children. I want to dive into this idea of discomfort. I was recently at a talk and by Dave Durant, actually, here from Relevant Radio, and he was talking about how the key to success is doing things you don't feel like doing. And this is so relevant to our Catholic tradition that's focused on asceticism to build virtue, working to implement good habits. It's very much so Aristotelian and the Nicomachean ethics. We talk all about good habits, especially with Thomas Aquinas as well. And when we think about good habits, it's habitually building a practice, even going against our desires. And eventually we do things not just against our desires, but for the right reasons. We even desire to do the right things, but often we have to go against that desire to do something else, to be distracted. So joining me to dive into this is Nir Isle. He's the author of Indistractable. Now, Nir, you recently posted on Twitter something that I love. I'm writing it down. You said discomfort is what it feels like to get better at something. In your book, Indistractable, you talk a lot about how distraction is all about how we handle or don't handle our discomfort. Can you talk about how we leverage discomfort to have this growth mindset that we are so attracted to, yet we don't like because it's all about working past what we don't feel like doing? Absolutely. And it's great to be back with you again. Thank you for having me. So it's so important to understand that there are two paths we can take with our decisions. We can go towards traction. Traction is something that pulls us towards what we say we're going to do. And the opposite of that is distraction. So anything that pulls us away from what we plan to do, away from our values, away from becoming the kind of person we want to become. So the idea here is that we make sure that we do these things with intent, that we don't allow our emotions and specifically the desire to escape from negative emotions. We know that the human brain is driven, the seat of motivation is not the pursuit of pleasure. We used to think it's about carrots and sticks, right? We've all heard this metaphor that we pursue Mm -hmm. pleasure and we avoid pain. turns out that's not true, that neurologically speaking, everything we do is about the desire to escape discomfort. So that must therefore mean that time management is pain management. I would add weight management is pain management. Money management Mm -hmm. is pain management. So if we can learn how to manage that discomfort, we can use it as rocket fuel 
to push us towards traction rather than what many people struggle with is the desire to escape with distraction. So whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, whatever that distraction might be, we have to understand that the root cause of that distraction is always a desire to escape an uncomfortable sensation. But of course, growth requires discomfort. Growth is what we find on the other side of that discomfort. So it behooves us. We have to master these, what we call internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotional states, or they will become our masters. So essentially, we're living in an escapist culture, and we don't quite realize it. Well, we and we always have. In fact, we know that the Greek philosopher Plato was talking about akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interests. So at least the past 2,500 years, people have struggled with distraction. This is, in fact, part of the human condition. But that doesn't mean that we're beholden to that instinct. That in fact, the way we become civilized people who, who live the kind of lives that are full of joy as opposed to regret is that we are thoughtful about what we do with our time and attention rather than letting us be uh, swayed around by the winds of distraction. Do you think that our avoidance of discomfort and our increase in distraction has gotten worse from modern technology and development? And I look at the studies near and we see how short our attention span is. I was even talking mm -hmm. to a friend uh, whose child struggles with autism. And she's talked about how when she allows the technology to be her crutch, in parenting mm. to deal with the fixations that he might have. She turns to technology thinking that it's making her e things easier for her to get a break for a moment, but then she notices the attention span decreases and decreases on her children. So back to that question, because we see this all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just a recent example. Do you think that our discomfort has worsened or aversion to it and our distraction has increased or do we just think that it has? I think this is the price of progress that it's very mm. easy to blame whatever new technological devices people are using these days. And of course, we always have, <laughs> right? In my generation, it wasn't uh, uh, video games and, and social media like it is today. They called us couch potatoes because we watched too much television. And before that, it was the radio. And before that, it was all the way to the written word. Socrates talked about how this terrible technology of the written word was going to enfeeble men's minds. So every new technology carries a price that uh, Sophocles said nothing enters nothing vast enters the life of mortals without a curse so the price of progress the price of having the world's information at your fingertips right on your phone the price of having entertainment whenever you want it the price of of being able to connect with people all over the world i'm in singapore you're in the states it's it's amazing that we can do this but the price of all this progress of this human ingenuity is that we need to learn how to deal with these devices, that we, we, we can learn to use them as opposed to letting them use us. Hmm. Talk to me a little bit more about why you think discomfort is necessary for growth. When you posted that on Twitter a couple of days ago, discomfort is what it feels like to get better at something. I wanted to hear just like explain on your what, yeah. what, why this is relevant to you right now. What had you lingering on this? Sure. I think, I think if there's one thing that we, uh, that we get wrong, there's many things that we get wrong in society, but one of the things we get wrong in society is that we think that, that pain is always bad, that any sort of discomfort needs to be quelled and, and, and escaped from. And, and I think that's, that's a, a gross miscategorization that, you know, think about all the books in the titles where it says something about being happy, how happiness is the goal, how we always want to be happy. And if you're not happy, then something's wrong with you. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
that uh, th- this the, the the desire for happiness is is itself a fleeting sensation. So that shouldn't be the bar. That in fact, when we feel discomfort, we need to realize that that is the human condition. It's okay to feel discomfort because it's just a signal. You know, our emotions, these physiological reactions that we have in our life, they are signals. They're just pieces of information. And of course, how we use that information, what we do with that information can lead us towards distraction. So if every time we feel bored or lonesome or lost or uncertain or stressed or anxious, do we try and escape that discomfort with a drink, with television, with a scroll? Do we try and escape that discomfort with distraction? Or do we lean into that discomfort? Do we find ourselves being able to use it as rocket fuel because we tell ourselves, wait a minute, this is actually a sign that what I'm doing is important to me. It's valuable. It's okay that this is hard. So for example, in my life, you know, I've been a professional author and researcher for over a decade. And let me tell you, every time I sit down to write, it's hard. It's really difficult. All I want to go do is, you know, check email or look at the news or, or scroll social media or do anything but the hard work I know I have to do to move my life and career forward. So mm-hmm. I repeat my, to myself this simple phrase, whenever things get difficult for me and all I want to do is distract myself, I repeat myself that, that this mantra of mine that says, this is what it feels like to get better. This mm-hmm. is what it feels like to get better. Just reminding myself that the, the discomfort is part of growth. It's a necessary step along the way towards progress. So let's talk about discomfort. Is it considered an emotion or is it a label for certain emotions? Yeah, I would say it's it's a label for a whole class of sensations, whether yeah. it's stress, anxiety, fatigue, uncertainty, doubt, uh, any of these these emotional states we want to get out of. And, and we have to remember, th- this is our brain doing us a favor. Our brain is giving us this emotion subconsciously, right? It's, you can't you can't will yourself to to feel these physiological sensations, but it's in fact a signal that that is giving us more information, right? Mm-hmm. They, there's a reason we have we we say you should listen to your gut, your gut, that feeling, that emotion is giving you important information. I love this because it, it means that we need to be emotionally aware, have what I like to refer to as emotional integrity, where we're able to mm-hmm. acknowledge, okay, I'm experiencing this emotion. What do I do about it? I don't always just follow it. Sometimes it's inappropriate to follow it. For example, if I'm at a funeral and I'm feeling giddy, that's not really appropriate to be giddy mm-hmm. and silly. You know, if I'm, depending on where I'm at, it really does matter. No, just because I'm angry doesn't mean I can act angry. And so mm-hmm. discomfort, labeling that on a handful of emotions, if we're able to label those emotions as discomfort, like you said, it can be a signal for growth. And I love what you're saying that that's a part of what's necessary in order to grow because we live in a culture that says, no, I reject discomfort. Don't do anything you feel uncomfortable with. You know, I think the culture says to a fault and sometimes it's necessary, but like cut off your family, sever those relationships, uh, go somewhere else, quit your job. And sometimes those are necessary things to do in extremes, but usually that's not how day-to-day life works. And so your work focuses so much near on that necessity of embracing discomfort. And I really like that. And it jives with our Catholic tradition as well of asceticism of allowing ourselves to experience things and even choose things such as fasting for the sake of growth. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a, a, a very ancient tradition that I, I, I wish we would, we would remember how important it is and, and why it's been a, a tradition for so long, because it works that, that understanding 
that you don't control your emotions. It's, it's important to understand, I think, the difference between emotions and feelings. People use these words synonymously, but they really do have a difference. An emotion is this unconscious physiological response. A feeling is how you interpret that emotion. It's the words you attach to the emotion. So you don't control your emotions. You don't control your emotions. When you feel an urge, for example, uh, to get distracted by something, you don't control that urge any more than you might control the urge to sneeze. When you feel the urge to sneeze, you can't tell yourself not to feel that urge. It's too late. You've already felt that urge to sneeze. But the important thing is how you will respond to that urge. Hence the term responsibility. It's all about how you will respond. So when you feel the urge to sneeze, will you sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? No. What you do is you take out a, 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 a tissue and you cover your face because that's the responsible thing to do. And so it goes for the same, uh, the pr the same principle when we feel these other sensations of boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress. Do we try and escape them or do we try and use them to our advantage so that we can prevent distraction and move towards traction? I'm giving myself homework with all of this because whenever you're on, you always inspire me. And Nira, if you're just joining us, that's Nira Isle. He's the author of the book, Indistractable. I'll post a link in the episode notes as well to where he's joined us specifically talking about addressing distraction in our lives. I need to always kind of have that check-in. But my homework that I'm thinking of for myself is asking myself the question of well, what causes me the most discomfort in my day and how can I address it? Both embracing it, but also premeditating the discomfort so it doesn't compound. I'm even thinking, you know, whether it's laundry that maybe I wait too long. One of my habits is to do and do the laundry. And then next thing you know, I plan to actually fold it, but so much of it's piled up, it becomes this massive task. And it, it's, a, it's something I avoid, right? Folding the laundry. And the simple things like getting ahead on how can I address this discomfort? It's a simple example, but addressing how we can get ahead of the discomfort. And I think that's the problem is I think a lot of task saturation today occurs because we let something compound and it becomes a bigger problem or a bigger challenge than it actually is in our heads. And so that's my homework for myself. And I think this addresses our fallen human nature as Catholics. Like we understand a Catholic worldview is that at the fall, we have this tendency towards sin, this tendency to just chase after our own desires, our own comfort. And yet, if we want to grow, if we want to push past that fallen human nature, we have to be willing to embrace the discomfort for growth. I love this, Nir. If you haven't checked out his book, Indistractable, please do so. We're posting a link on social media. Mark's on the line from Oak Lawn, Illinois. Mark, welcome to Trending. What's your question or comment today for Nir? Uh, I think it's a very interesting topic. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thank you for taking my call. You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, even if you look in the, the Gospels as a Catholic, you know, uh, St. Paul, you know, affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, hope produces love, you know, and, and I think I think we live in a world of uh, everything's instant gratification. You, know, you talked about technology, you know, and what feels good must be good, you know, is it good for me to go out and eat a whole pizza, mm. a whole gallon of ice cream? You know, it's, 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 it's really, uh, you know, turning over turning it over to yourself through service and our Lord. And, uh, and that, you know, I, th I thought an interesting point is, you know, sin is about, it means not missing the mark, missing the mark. And, and we're all sinners, you know? So, so my point is, 
is that you can't be afraid of failure. You know, we're, all, we're human beings. We're going to fail. But how do we deal with it? You know, how do we deal with it? You know, we're lucky being Catholics. We got confession. But, you know, young people, you know, you can't be afraid of failure. You know, you got to pick yourself up and you, and you got to keep going. And, uh, and and I think trying to live a virtuous life is, is uh, really the way to go also. You know, instead of, uh, you know, living for uh, ratification and all this all this stuff that feels good, you know, trying mm-hmm. to challenge yourself. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, I think I really appreciate what you said, Mark, especially when you look at the epistle of James and his first chapter it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. I think that's a great example, Mark. Um, let me hear your thoughts near on that because it, this is so fundamental to our Catholic tradition. I don't know if you're Catholic, but so much of what you say remind, reminds me of the ascetic practice that the saints have lived out before us. Absolutely. So I, I think there's a lot to be said about intention that uh, the, the, it's so important to understand your why. And of course, for the faith-based community, that, that why is very obvious, the, of, of serving each other, serving the Lord, that's very clear. Uh, and I think that having that in advance is, inc- is an incredible gift that we have in our life to know why we are doing what we're doing. The, the, the difficulty, of course, is carrying out those whys, is doing the things that you know you need to do. Uh, you know, and so that's that's really what's so important. That is the one word that separates traction from distraction is intent. So having the forethought to sit down and say, here's what I want to do with my time. And of course, what I advise in my book, Indistractable, is this technique called time boxing, where you literally sit down. It takes me 15 minutes for the whole week. I do it every Sunday night with my wife. And we sit down and we look at our calendar. We look at our schedule and we turn our values into time. You know, many of us, we, we talk a good game about values, right? What are your values? But the way you know someone's values is you look at how they spend their time and how they spend their money. That's how you really know what someone's values are. Not what they say, but how they spend their time and their money. Just like how, you know, you, you would balance a checkbook, we balance our calendar. So we sit down together, my wife and I, every Sunday night, and we look at our schedule for the week ahead, and we make sure, do we have the time to live out our values. And that means down to the minute. And so does that mean that we have time for prayer? Do we have time uh, for rest? Do we have time to read? Do we have time to be together as a couple? Do we have time to be together as a family? Of course, work needs to be there. That takes up the majority of our time because part of our values is to be productive members of society and contribute and, 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 and support our family. So, but, but what that means is turning your values into time, not in some amorphous, uh, uh, a hypothetical way, but actually sitting down by the minute and figuring out how you want to spend your time. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't time box anything less, less than a 15-minute time box, but, but having that time in advance set aside for our friends, for our family, for our work, for ourselves, and for our faith is incredibly important. I love it, Nir. You can find Nir Isle at nirandfar.com. That's N-I-R andfar.com, nearandfar.com, where you'll find his excellent book, Indistractable. I've read the book. I love it. And in fact, we're going to talk about distraction coming up here. We're going to talk about raising indistractable teenagers. Teenagers are overwhelmed, stressed, struggling with mental health crises today. And much of what's at the core of this, I think, is distraction. We'll hear Nears' thoughts in just a moment here on Trending. So, what's trending? 
Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Distraction, raising indistractable teenagers. It is so important. I'm looking at what's happening with teens today. And let's be honest, it's not just teens, it's ourselves. But let's talk about teenagers. Recent reports have come out over the last couple of months that emergency rooms are overwhelmed with children in the ER for mental health crises, not for medical issues. Parents don't know where else to take their children. They're at their wit's end, and they're keeping these children in the hospitals for hours because they're not able to just release the kids right away. These kids are overwhelmed, stressed, struggling with significant mental health challenges. And I do think that distraction is a part of this. Nir Isle, who wrote the book Indistractable, is joining me today on Trending. Nir, do you think that distraction and technology is a part of the uphill battle that teenagers are facing today with a mental health crisis? So I think that overuse of digital devices is a symptom, not the cause that I think what we find, at least in my family, so I'm, I'm the father of a teenage girl, and um, I will tell you that I have never, in, in raising her, found that when she has the opportunity to do something fun in the real world with her friends, that she doesn't prefer that over anything on her phone. So what we find is that when, when kids really overuse their devices, it's a symptom of a deficiency in what we call psychological nutrients. So if you'll allow me, let me, let me just highlight what these psychological nutrients are. So we know we have the, our, our, our physiological nutrients, the macronutrients of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. That's what we need to keep our body running healthily. Well, it turns out that psychologically, we also have these three psychological nutrients as well. And these psychological nutrients are competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And, and every psychologist and psychiatrist on the face of the earth has heard about these. This is called self-determination theory. It's a 50-year-old theory of human motivation and flourishing. And what we find is that today, if you really want to look at the deeper reason, of course, the simple answer is, oh, it's a technology. And of course, we've always said this, right? Every generation says it's some kind of new technology that's melting kids' brains. And it never is. There's always a deeper reason. And, and fundamentally, we need to look at ourselves as parents and ask ourselves, is this, are we blaming something outside of ourselves, outside of our kids, because it, that's really the cause? Or because it makes me feel good that I have a reason to justify why my kid is acting the way they are. And this is a, a, something that every generation struggles with. Every generation thinks that the next generation of kids is, is, is losing their minds. But let's look at the deeper reason of what I think is really going on. When we look at these three psychological nutrients, let's start with competency. Competency is this need that we all have children, adults, we all have this need to feel like we are getting better at something, that we are competent. But if you look at the state of childhood today, you know, what, what's happened since the, around the same time as, as smartphones around 2008 was this No Child Left Behind Act, which started paying teachers based on performance, on test scores. And so what we find is that we test children constantly, even starting from first grade, even kindergarten, these standardized tests, which tell a lot of, which tell many children, you are not competent. You're still not good enough. And if you don't feel competent in the real world, well, just go online and you're going to feel amazing, right? When you, when you can play a game, when you can play Fortnite, when you can go on, on, uh, on various platforms, you feel competent. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're, you, you have that, that sense of competency. Now let's look at agents, or the, um, sorry, 
um, agency where, where we know that you need this sense of control over your life, that you need a sense of autonomy and freedom. All of us need this. We know that this is the most scheduled generation in history. Yes. That the average child today, the average teenager, has twice as many rules and restrictions placed on them as an adult. They have almost as many restrictions as a convicted felon. So there's only two places in the world that you can tell people where to go, what to eat, what to think, who to be friends with, uh, how to dress, and that's school and prison. So knowing this, is it any surprise that when our kids come home, they want freedom, they want autonomy. It's one of these core psychological nutrients. They need that sense of, of control over their lives. And so if you don't get that offline, if you don't get that in the real world, again, you go online. When in an online game, you, you feel in control, you feel autonomous, you feel freedom. That's what they're looking for. And then finally, relatedness. We all need this sense of, of that we care for others and others care for us. But unfortunately, we know that there is less time spent doing free play. Free play is this critical component of childhood that we have yes. stolen from our yes. children. Free play is when our children have time to interact with their peers without the gaze of coaches and teachers and parents, just time for them to be kids. And we know that from the work of Peter Gray that children have less time for free play than at any time in history, in, in American history. And so we have to bring these three things back. We have to give kids th these three psychological nutrients of competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And I think that will, will solve for many, many children th this crisis that we see today. Mm. It reminds me of a story because I'm big on delaying technology use and really having healthy boundaries with technology. And we could talk a lot about that. We have some great guests, yourself included, who have addressed this. But I hear from people who are really working on adopting this. I was speaking to a woman. She has a couple of teenagers. And she said when she decided to go um, smartphone free with her kids using things such as the Gab phone and others, she said instantly she started seeing as she decreased screen time, her son, her teenage son, starts spending time in the garage. And she's like, okay, mm. interesting. What's he doing out there? And every time she'd go and check, you know, here and there, giving him his space. But he is having, you know, some autonomous time, as you're talking about. Next thing you know, he is building the most incredible things in the garage. Working with tinkering, building cars, fixing things. And he started experimenting in such an incredible way she had never seen him do before. And she realized he really never had that hands-free time away from a screen to allow mm. that creativity to bud. And she said it never would have developed had she not limited and restricted screens. And I thought that that was really relevant when we were talking about raising indistractable teenagers, because I think there are a mm -hmm. lot of skills that my generation, the next generations are never developing because they never have a free moment. Right. I think the, the problem with the devices is, is not the devices themselves. We don't want to vilify these devices because let's, let's face it, the jobs of the future will require our children to be fluent with technology. So we don't want to tell them that these de de devices are bad for them and they're ruining their brain because they, they, they'll see right through that. We, we, we want them to be comfortable with these technologies. But the conversation we need to have with our kids, especially our teenagers, where one of the worst things you can do to a teenager is tell them what to do. You know, give me that phone. That's awful. Because what are you doing? Well, you're eliciting, you're, you're, you're robbing them of uh, autonomy and agency. And of course, what do they do? They rebel. It's not hormones that makes teens rebellious. It's that we have so many rules on future adults and telling them what to do all the time. If you got told what to do all the time, you also would rebel. So instead, what we want to do is to have a conversation with our children, like I had with my teenage daughter, 
around you know the 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 price of these technologies, the price of overusing these technologies, is what else you could be doing with your time, right? It could be spending time with your family, with your friends, doing craft projects, going into the garage and tinkering with the, with the engines as as this uh, family did. Um, all these wonderful things that you could do with your time. That's the price of using these technologies too much. That doesn't mean it doesn't have a time in your day. So again, one of the the key uh, steps to becoming indistractable is turning your values into time. So I recommend that families actually schedule that technology time, schedule time for social media, schedule time for video games, schedule it. Because as opposed to saying, no, don't do it, what you're doing is essentially saying, look, there's a time and a place for these things. As long as it's done in moderation, there's nothing wrong with it. So how much time would you like to go online? And if you come up with a reasonable number compared to all the other things you wanna do with your life, there's nothing wrong with that, but have it on a schedule. One, it gives kids that, uh, that autonomy and agency to be heard, that this is something that they enjoy. And two, they don't have to think about it all day, thinking, when can they go online? When can I go online? They know when they can go online. It's on their schedule. I like that example to help guide when things are being time blocked for kids, because I think that when we talk about technology, they just fall into it. They're in it. They're using it. They're immersed in it with schools, with homework. It's almost as if you just fall into it with the rest of your entertainment time. And so having that value system in place is great. Now, part of the science is talking about prefrontal cortex near. And if you're just joining me, that's near aisle. He wrote the excellent book, Indistractable. You need to buy the book. It's great. It's helpful. And we're talking about raising indistractable teenagers. So the prefrontal cortex we know doesn't fully develop until the near the age of 25. Do you think it's reasonable to expect teenagers to self-regulate with the bombardment of distractions they have today? Where's the balance you find with helping teenagers between self-regulation and guiding them? So glad you asked because this is a myth. This idea that the teenage brain is not developed, um, it's, it's not true. That in fact, we know it's not true because it's only in industrialized countries that we have this myth. If you go, I, I was in Guatemala a few years ago, and you look at children and teenagers, they are not rebellious. They're helpful. They work with the family. They're part of the community. It's only in industrialized societies where we institutionalize our children constantly telling them what to do, where to go, bells and whistles, telling them between class times, everything that needs to happen in their life, that they have no agency and autonomy. And so of course they rebel. Of course they don't want to listen to you because we're bossing them around all day. And so this is the problem. Children don't have the freedom that they deserve as human beings, as sentient beings. They need to make choices for themselves. And so this, it is a myth that the, the, the teenage brain is incapable of, of doing these things. That's just not true. If you look for the course of human history, uh, t- teenagers were, were productive members of society. <laughs> they weren't these, these cast-offs that could do nothing but sit in, in school. Uh, that's a very recent phenomenon. And mm-hmm. so uh, they absolutely can. Uh, they, I, I'm not saying they, that they need full autonomy. Of course, they need our guidance. I think that every parent, for example, needs to make sure that they take a very close look at the settings on their computer, for example, that their children is using to make sure that certain content is blocked from a child's eye. There's a lot of things that a child should not have access to on the internet. So there's definitely some things that parents have a a role uh, uh, to play in. But I think we forget 
that we can have a conversation with our children. So I'll tell you, when my daughter was only six years old, we found that she was spending a lot of time on her iPad. So we sat down with her and we, and we told her, look, how much time do you want to spend with the iPad? Okay, she was just six years old. We asked her and, and you know what? She, she gave us a good answer. She thought for a while and we, 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 and we told her, look, you know, exactly what I said to you earlier, the price of using too much screen time is the time that you wouldn't get to spend with your friends, spend with us, go to the pool, go outside, do your homework, all the other things that you want to do with your time. That's the price. So how much time do you want? And she came back and she looked at me and she said, can I watch two episodes? Two episodes. Well, there's nothing wrong with two episodes. There's actually not even one study that shows that three hours or less of extracurricular screen time, if it's age appropriate, has any deleterious effects. So two episodes, about 45 minutes, I got no problem with that. But I told her, I said, look, that's fine, but I don't wanna be the policeman. I don't wanna tell you when to get off your device. So how will you make sure that you know your time is up? And she said, okay, well, how about this? And we used to have a microwave that was in our kitchen below the countertop. And she saw that many times we would use it as a timer. And so she said, how about this, daddy? How about I'll set the timer and when it beeps, I'll know my time is up. I said, that's fine. And that's what she does today. Today, she actually uses technology. She uses uh, uh, the Amazon Echo to tell her she sets a timer and says, okay, that's enough of my YouTube time or my video game time or whatever she's doing. Because remember the goal here, we're not raising children. We're not raising children. We're raising future adults. And so if you constantly enforce these rules and say, put down that iPad, put away that phone, stop playing video games, what do you think they're gonna do when these teenagers become 20 year olds? and they leave the house. Are you still gonna follow them around and tell them what to do? No, we have to teach them this fundamental skill of becoming indistractable. I like what you said because I think there's much to be dug into and perhaps these conversations haven't had to be, haven't been had enough about the prefrontal cortex neuroscientists saying that it's not fully developed until the age, near the age of 25. And I know they've talked more so about the reasonability of a person, but you share the example of Guatemala and other places, especially, you know, when you refer to third world areas where they're not as regimented or you could even argue not always as educated as Western society, yet the expectations and the responsibility is embraced in a much stronger way. So I think there's much to be discussed and maybe even correlating some of that research that people use. But when we talk, I think as well about kids and maybe there are differences of opinion here, which is great. I think it's great when there are differences. I know I've seen some studies, I don't have them in front of me right now, but where it points to, you know, 30 minutes a day of extracurricular technology being kind of a good balance for kids. I think there's a lot to be discussed here, but it's bringing up what you're saying with the distraction of helping with a value system with kids, helping them to see that if they are prioritizing the things they want to do, spending time with friends, you mentioned going and swimming in the pool, maybe playing extracurricular activity, whatever that might be, they need to see the value of it and help them to regulate that technology in that sense. I think that's really key. Can you share with me some of the key steps that you recommend in terms of tools and steps that parents take to come alongside their teenagers to address distraction? I'll, I'll give you some quick tips. Number one, we know that, that one of the, uh, the, the key factors in this mental health crisis that we're facing is not necessarily the technology itself, but what the technology is displacing. And the thing that the technology is displacing that's very dangerous is sleep. So yes, I believe yep. that anything that beeps, buzzes, or boops does not have a place in a child's bedroom. Do not let your child have a computer, an iPad, a phone, a television. How many of our kids have televisions <laughs> yep. in their bedrooms? Yep. Even a radio, anything that can interrupt sleep. Pets, 
I don't think pets should be sleeping with their kids if the kids is, are, are being woken up. Sleep is so important, especially for a developing young brain. Anything that could interrupt a child's sleep needs to, a teenager's sleep specifically, needs to be out of their bedroom. So that's a very quick tip. Another thing, Love and perhaps it. the most important thing, the most important thing is that if you want to raise indistractable kids, you have to be an indistractable parent. I can't tell you how many parents call me and say, my child won't stop playing Fortnite. My child won't get mm -hmm. off TikTok. They won't stop using their phones. And meanwhile, as they're telling me this, they're checking email on their phone themselves. Yep. We have to set a good example. We can't be hypocrites. You know, our children come with these invisible antennae. You can't see them, but they're there. That these antennae are constantly searching for the hypocrisy detection. That's what they're always doing. They're looking for when we screw up as parents. And so we need to be very aware that we are setting an example. And it's okay to be vulnerable. It's all right. Many, many parents have a real tough time telling their kids that they themselves are struggling. But this is what we have to do. We have to sit down with our kids and say, look, these devices, these technologies are wonderful. They're a blessing. But they come with some costs. And I am struggling with this as well. I, too, am struggling with putting them in their place. Let's do this together. Let's learn how to become indistractable together. And how do we do that? Number one, we master the internal triggers. We master the, the, the uncomfortable sensations that drive us towards distraction. We talked about that in the last segment and also about psychological nutrients. What's the real source of these uncomfortable sensations? Then we make time for traction. We plan our day, including time for the fun stuff like video games. But we do that by understanding how do we live out our values. Whatever those values might be, how do we live out those values by turning our values into time, by putting it on our calendar? Then hacking back the external triggers, removing them from a child's bedroom, removing them from anywhere they, they are during uh, when they're doing homework, including when we are the external triggers. Children are far <laughs> more interrupted by their parents when they're trying to focus, when they're trying to do their homework, when they're trying to, to, mm -hmm. to, to do something that they want to do by their parents than their devices. So we need to make sure we're not the source of the distraction, that if a child plans to do something, we let them do it without distraction. And then finally, we hack, we prevent distraction with pacts. And this is where we can actually use various technologies, ironically enough, to block out technology. So our phones, many of them come pre-installed with these tools that help us prevent distraction with packs. And there are all kinds of free tools that we can download as well that help us set time limits, that, uh, that help us make sure that we make packs with ourselves to, as the last line of defense, as the firewall against distraction, that we, we prevent getting distracted. So it's really these four steps in concert. Master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. This is how anyone can become indistractable. These are all great. Setting those values, setting the time schedule calendar, and just maybe a brief comment of devil's advocate where someone might say, okay, you said that kids are so regulated with rules today, yet, yet you're saying, hey, set aside the, that time on the calendar. Set aside the priorities. Can you speak to why this isn't adding additional rules, but it's adding a value system and time to be productive, as you said? Yeah, terrific, terrific question. Thank you so much for clarifying. It's with them, not for them, not at them. So when, when a child goes to school and they're given, here's your school schedule, they've had no say in that. Whereas when you sit down with your child and say, look, I, I, I see you love playing video games. How can we make sure that we put that in your day on your schedule in a way that we make sure you get that time for video games and you have time for the other things that are important in your life. So you're sitting down and having that conversation with your child. You're not making them do something. They're part of this process. 
Right. And again, the difference in parenting, we can talk about friendship parenting versus authoritative parenting and finding that balance. But I think there's a lot here to dive into with your resources, hacking back the distractions, helping to have a value system, making time for traction. All of this is so key. And it really addresses, I think, getting into some of you know the debates surrounding neuroscience today with the brains and how kids are handling distraction and the mental health crisis today. Nira, thank you for the work you're doing. Awesome book, Indistractable. Check his work out at nearandfar.com. That's N-I-R and far, F-A-R.com. I'll be right back here on Trending. talking about what you're thinking about you're listening to trending with timory on relevant radio and the relevant radio app so we'll be live and in person at the upcoming national eucharistic congress and we're inviting you to join us show up for jesus at this once in a lifetime celebration july 17th through 21st in indianapolis Check out our travel packages for the Congress at relevantradio.com slash encounter. That's relevantradio.com slash encounter. Also, have you signed up for our giveaway here at Relevant Radio? Do you have a nativity set to place outside your home this Advent and Christmas season? Well, thanks to a generous donor, we're giving away 200 beautiful hand-painted nativity sets, each valued at over $500 a piece. Display the true, humble, and profound reason for the reason for your family and neighborhood. Sign up to win a set at relevantradio.com slash set. That's relevantradio.com slash set. Sign up before October 15th at midnight at relevantradio.com slash set. Okay, a story came across my desk today that my jaw dropped. I can't believe I hadn't heard about it sooner. Here's the headline. Pregnant woman was given abortion pill by mistake. The Nevada CVS was fined $10,000. Let me tell you what happened. This woman lost two babies after taking an abortion pill, Mifepristone, that was mistakenly given to her through the series of two or more mistakes at a pharmacy. I think it was three different people who made a mistake. So let's talk about this. So And I think this is actually a really neat moment for just a moment here to just address the value that we have for human life. This woman was in the process of going through in vitro fertilization, and she'd had two babies, two human beings, who were already conceived via IVF in the most early stages of development. Now, the Catholic Church is completely against IVF. This is just a side note. However, once a baby is conceived, we always honor, respect, and protect all human life, and even celebrate the lives of those children. So even though we disagree with the means of getting there, that doesn't mean that we're in favor of these babies being destroyed who are conceived via IVF. This story is horrific. So this woman had just had two babies implanted, and she had these two babies who had been implanted. She needed to take a prescription that had 
progesterone to help in the development of the babies, that the babies would attach properly to the lining of the uterine wall, and the pregnancy would move forward with the babies thriving and healthy and born nine months later. Well, lo and behold, here's what happens. She is supposed to be getting a prescription with progesterone in it. Now, progesterone is progestation. It helps a baby to continue to develop. It prevents miscarriage in the first half of pregnancy and prevents preterm labor in the second half of pregnancy. This woman instead is given mifepristone, which is the set, sorry, misoprostol, correction. She's given misoprostol, which is the second of the two drugs that's taken in the chemical abortion RU486 process. Now, misoprostol is both an endocrine disruptor and it causes labor. This woman was given an abortion drug. This woman was given an abortion drug. She lost her babies. Now, it could have been in part because in vitro fertilization is extremely unsuccessful. When I say unsuccessful, many babies die in the process. Often, they can't even have a baby start developing. And when babies do start to develop, many babies are negligibly handled and many, many babies die along the way. Now, these babies could have died in part because of the IVF process. They could have died in part because of the mysoprostol. It could have been a combination. We don't know exactly what the cause of death was completely for these babies. But bottom line is we have two babies who died because of multiple mistakes, not just one mistake, but multiple mistakes at CVS. And here's what happened though. When you read through the details of the story, her doctor prescribed her endometrin, which has progesterone in it. Instead, she was given by a pharmacist at CVS a medication that had misoprostol. Again, endocrine disruptor and causes labor, causing the death of a baby. So the technician who was doing the data entry from her physician recorded the drug the wrong way. She recorded not the drug that had progesterone, but instead she recorded mycopristone, which is exactly, oh, sorry, mifepristone, which was in the generic form, what she had mistakenly thought was actually the progesterone. Now, after that, after then putting it through, then the dosage was written wrong on the prescription. So that's the second mistake by another person there at the pharmacy. The third mistake was then that she was not spoken to about here is your prescription. This is what your doctor prescribed. This is what it's for. These are the directions. No one reviewed that with her. So all of the faulty notifications that should have gone through to notify them of this error didn't occur. In fact, along the process, there's something in the CVS protocol in the process of going through with obtaining a prescription that's supposed to notify them to a mistake. When the notification mistake came up, it was actually there one of the workers overseeing things at CVS that overrode a system warning pertaining to the data entry error. And so all of this from the, it's actually four people then, even the person who overruled the data warning system that Misoprostol was given to kill a baby instead of a progesterone medication to save a baby. Four people were involved in this entire process. And I'm sorry, but I am aghast at the fact that $10,000 in total is what CVS has been fined for all of this. This happened back in 2019. 
Now, I was reading the statements and some of the comments. No one was fined other than CVS. Any of the pharmacists or data entrants here were fined more than $2,000. Many of them received a slap on the wrist. Uh, they have to go through five or three additional educational credits. That's nothing. That's nothing. Many educational credits can be gone through in a couple of hours. These people should have been fired. These people shouldn't never practice in the pharmaceutical industry again. And maybe you're saying, well, people make mistakes. That sounds a little extreme. No, these people, four people made massive mistakes that led to the death of two babies. Now, in a statement from CVS health, health spokesperson, Amy Thibault, she said, We've apologized to our patient for the prescription incident that occurred in 2019 and have cooperated with the Nevada Board of Pharmacy in this matter. My jaw, first of all, dropped when I read the headline that there was only a $10,000 fine implemented. But when my jaw really dropped was when I read this horrific, barbaric response by the CVS health spokesperson. I'm sorry, but we've apologized to our patient for the prescription incident that occurred? This isn't a prescription incident. This is called two babies were killed. Killed, yes, by mistake, but with four people involved and overriding an emergency system to make sure the wrong medication that's given, uh, where a, a person, a pharmacist, did not go over the medication confirming that it was the right medication in the right directions. The data, the person who entered the data did not enter it correctly to begin with the correct prescription and the person setting the dosage did not enter it correctly. This woman lost her children. The spokesperson said the health and well-being of our patients is number one priority and we have comprehensive policies and procedures in place to support prescription safety. They didn't follow their own safety precautions. They did not listen when alerts went off. And not to mention that they talk about apologizing to the patient. They had two patients here, actually three, the mother and her two children. Acknowledge the loss of these babies. Say you're sorry for these children who have died. And yes, publicly, I will never trust a CVS system for prescriptions. This is horrific. And this is what happens when we have medications that are normal, that can kill children accessible at our fingertips. There were children here who were patients who should have been treated with respect. And this is also part of what's pro the problem, that to begin with, the person who was helping to enter the data for this woman and her children should have recognized that this was for three patients, not just one. And this is a flaw of our medical system and a culture that says, a baby is only wanted if you want it, yet these babies were wanted and the medical system failed these children and the mom. Pray for this mom and her healing and for justice in our pharmacy system. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Remember not too long ago, a cousin of mine was talking about fish and how they weren't quite having this balanced relationship between them so she put some crystals inside the fish tank next thing you know everything's fine so she's added some more crystals and more and it made me think about the catholic take on energy and crystals what's the big deal have you used them for your fish for yourself join me wednesday as we talk about energy and crystals 6 p.m central on relevant radio